As we ended the last episode of John Graves' musing about country life and the critters associated with it, cows, goats, dogs, and chickens, he was recalling the efforts of some old college friends to raise chickens, lots of them, for fun and profit. Graves continues that thread now, describing how the enterprise failed and his own adventures with chicken raising. This is the bookshelf. We're reading from A Limestone Ledge. Those couples had all their capital in the thing, about $10,000 each, which one had inherited and the other had earned playing murderous poker as a naval officer on a troop ship. Newcastle disease, or something like that, had obliterated three or four months' hypothetical profit just prior to our arrival. Dislike circulated back and forth between the wives, one, a loud-voiced, forthright good old girl, the other, a ladylike blonde with an Eastern College degree. Automation being not even yet a word, much hard, hot day-and-night work was required, and everybody was eating chicken twice a day in the absence of funds for a more varied provender. But that was just as well, because anything else they might have cooked up would have tasted like chicken poop too, since that was all you could smell. We stayed two nights in a hideaway sofa bed, listening in the small hours through the thin walls to a sweaty baby's howling and to the blonde girl's occasional pillow-dulled sobs. And a week later, and 150 miles away, my suitcase still had the stink of that place inside it. Our friends lasted there not a great while longer. One of the marriages crumpled under the strain. Oddly, I believe it was the good old girl who left, and the operation was sold off at a large loss, and the two former college roomies went their separate ways toward less idyllic pursuits. Whether it's experiences like that one that have spoiled me for careful chicken husbandry, even on a homestead scale, or some atavistic backwash in my psyche, the fact is that so far the only sorts of chickens I've had any luck with, or cared much about, are those that are more or less taking care of themselves. This attitude was reinforced by an effort I once made to keep a few purebred bantams in an orderly and protected way, maybe out of memories of childhood when my father maintained a gentle, pampered bunch of golden seabrights on our back lot. But the bantam's eggs were tiny, and the cockerels, when I bothered to fix them for the table, were not much bigger than very lean quail, though coons and ringtails and other wild carnivores found them delicious and very easy to catch. Not having yet learned to accept such raiding in stride, I took each loss to heart. I remember going out once at dawn to see about a commotion in the little plywood hovel I had built for them, and finding that during the night a skunk had broken in and killed my rooster and some hens, eating only their heads, as is the mustelines' frequent and peculiar custom. The scene held a sort of oriental tragic magnificence, with the monarch and three of his wives lying gorily decapitated on the throne-room floor, while the rest of the harem ran around in circles and screamed about their loss, or maybe just about their fear. But mainly what its magnificence roused in me was the rage of a bilked peasant. I was not far in spirit from those Chaucerian villagers who with clubs and trumpets ran and shrieked and howped vainly behind Russell the fox as he dashed off with cock chanticleer in his jaws, except that there was nothing to squike at. 
Despite a heavy teaching schedule at the time, I sat up a good part of the next night at an open kitchen window with a shotgun and in cold moonlight blasted the foul regicide when he came back for more heads. This gave me some good solid peasant satisfaction, but before long it was there to do over again, and in the end I gave what bantams were left to a friend's grandson along with their rickety house. Even so, I do still have an intermittent vision, by that same fire in winter, of an ample run and a neat hen house, heavily fenced and electrified against predatory intruders, and, and stocked with fat, motherly buff Orpingtons who will stroll and scratch sedately and chortle with happiness and lay large numbers of huge brown eggs. But for now, all I've got is fighting games that hide their few eggs in very funny places, soil our porches, chase cats, roost in the barn's rafters to the detriment of things below, run like chaparral cocks, and fly like pheasants. We came by our original batch of games through accident, inheritance, I guess you'd call it. When first married, we lived in a renovated white prairie gothic farmhouse west of Fort Worth with a barn nearby that was leased out separately as a boarding stable. The stable declined from grace as it passed out of the hands of the local horsey set Folks with pretty long-legged steeds and jodhpurs and Italian forward-seat jumping saddles and social heft, and became gradually, but inexorably, a haunt of goat ropers with their tight-pants girls and their hangers-on. One major sign of change was the appearance of a little flock of game hens with one big clipped comb rooster, released there for toughening by the chicken-fighting goat roper who owned them. When that phase of the stable's existence ended, as it did when the debt-ridden lessee bailed out for California with a lady not his wife, this sport came one night with his chrome pickup and some friends and flashlight and recaptured his birds from limbs and rafters where they were roosting and took them away. But he missed one large red hen who had made a nest in the loft from which she later hatched ten chicks. She was a tremendous mother, and could ride a hungry cat or a nosy dog for fifty yards, spurring and pecking it all the way. Our dachshund reached the point he'd refuse to go out if she was around the yard, preferring constipation to her ire. But the odds were rough against her in that deserted barn. By the time the Norway rats and the night creatures got through, she had one offspring left, a skittish black rooster who, when nearly grown, managed one day to fly his head into a dangling noose of baling wire at the entrance to a stall and hanged himself as neatly as any executioner could have. So that big mama, as we called her admiringly from afar, was yet again alone. When we moved out not long afterwards to a larger holding further out from town, I went down and grabbed big mama off her roost, getting spurred on the thumb in the process, and carried her out to the new place where there were four or five mixed-blood hens, part game themselves, and a chunky, dominicker-looking rooster. Big Mama promptly whipped them all, including the cock, but she was willing enough to use him for her main purpose of propagation, and during her prime at that place she hatched one or two broods each year, losing a majority of the chicks, except when occasionally, goaded by conscientiousness, I caught her, and forced her to hatch and partly raise them in a coop. The other hens also reproduced themselves, though with less dedication and success. Sometimes, despite the constant depredation of foxes and coons and skunks and owls and ringtails and possum and rats and snakes and feral cats, 
We had as many as twenty hens, lots of daily eggs searched out by the children, and a spotty supply of fat cockerels for the skillet. The home chicken flock, unmanaged. With such stark Darwinism at work, Big Mama's bellicose genes soon came to predominate, though somewhere along the way she herself vanished in the night. We did get infusions of fresh blood from time to time, mainly through gift chickens that had outgrown their attractiveness as pets in town. One such was Whitey Quarter, an erstwhile purple Easter chick metamorphosed into a large, ill-natured leghorn. His main trouble was that like many pets reared out of touch with their own kind, he thought he was a person. That was all right until he started trying to mount small visiting girls and ended up in a pot with dumplings, which is about the only way you can eat a full-grown rooster and enjoy it, if you can at all. This tough and fluctuating and motley flock persisted until the last couple of years at our tenancy at that place, when we and our dogs began spending the summers down here on our own Cedar Hill acreage 50 miles away, and the chickens were left for three months at a time, without even the casual protection of our presence. The last survivor was a lean black hen, a fit daughter to Big Mama, who kept on laying and hopefully incubating unfertilized eggs, even after something chewed a big hunk out of her breast one night. She succumbed in the end to a five-millimeter pellet fired by an irate gardener living a half-mile away, to whom I had given permission for such action after she ate all his cherry tomatoes. Here on our own ground, where we finally moved a few years ago, my intention at the start was to run a fairly taut ship and not to undertake any given homestead activity until I was ready to do it right. Sometimes things have worked out that way, but I fear that more often they haven't. Available time and flagging personal vigor are prickly factors, and long observation of one's fellow rustics and their time-honored ways also nudges one toward a slobbish conviction that rightness and taut ships are, after all, relative things. It's better, for instance, to have a garden full of Johnson grass roots and re-sprouting brush that have to be fought back among the vegetables each year than to have no garden at all. And even though one may nurse within one's secret winter fireside self a vision of fat Orpingtons adeptly tended, does that mean, perforce, that one must do without fresh eggs and morning cockcrows till the requisite facilities have been built? When tempted early on, in fact, before we even moved here to stay, I decided that it didn't. While visiting a South Texas friend, I ventured to admire a resident flock of what he called Scrub Mexican Games, as tough and self-reliant a crew as old Big Mamas get, but uniform in type, the cocks of the coloration known as black-breasted red, which traces straight back to the Asian jungle fowl ancestral to all chickens, and the hens, neatly brown, with golden-tan speckles and shadings. He asked if I'd like a trio, two hens and a rooster, the standard small-scale start with poultry. Subverting yet once more the Orpington dream, I swiftly said, I would, and from that action derives these ten years later or so, our present teeming flock of chickens numbering two. Not that they haven't thrived at times, to the point that I gave away a good many to other people myself, thus in effect repaying the original gift. 
One trio went to a local young townsman whose subsequent experience indicated that my friend's description of their lineage might be slightly awry. They may or may not be Mexican, but there's nothing scrub about them. The boy said he just wanted to raise a flock for fun, and I believe he really did, but a chicken-fighting crony, our region has more than its share of these, persuaded him to trim the cock's comb and wattles and fit him with steel spurs. And the first Saturday they fought, he murdered his adversary in short order and won them sixty dollars. Unfortunately, this was his last fight, for shortly thereafter a red fox invaded the pasture cowshed where they were keeping him with the hens and bore him away to the brush for dinner. All while the distraught owner was running toward the shed and waving a stick and squiking and howping. Thus perish human hopes and dreams. Around here we've had some fairly impressive cockfights too, mainly in the years when I've neglected to harvest the new generation of cockerels soon enough. It takes a twenty-two and a certain amount of stalking, and I sometimes put it off. When the sexual itch begins to gnaw them, they get to squabbling among themselves for rank, and some reach the point of wanting to try Papa on for size, nearly always a mistake. Once committed to battle, they only rarely quit unless blinded or totally outclassed in weight and age, and if you break up the brawl, they'll resume it later elsewhere. Winners lack entirely that forbearance that characterizes bulls and billy goats and most other animal victors in struggles for dominance, who let the losers shamble away in battered disgruntlement. A gamecock will keep on pecking and spurring a downed opponent while there's still a twitch visible, and when the twitches stop, he climbs on top of the bloody corpse and crows, staggering with fatigue and with weakness of his own wounds. They are, in short, not very nice fellows, but then they're not supposed to be. What you tend to forget if you keep them just as chickens, watching them chase grasshoppers about the yard and strut for the hens and arch their necks to crow picturesquely from time to time, is that for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, game fowl have been bred by men for a single main fell purpose, so that their ferocity far exceeds that of their wild progenitors, and is in a sense not so much their own as an extension of human ferocity, which may be the worst kind of all. But when I'm honest with myself, I know their ferocity is damn beautiful as well because in another sense what men have bred into them over the centuries is an ideal of total courage. Total courage in relation to other chickens, however, is not much of a defense against tooth nocturnal varmints, and in the past couple of years some individual canny marauder, probably a fox but maybe a coon, has whittled our flock down from a peak population of about two dozen to one rooster and one hen. He's accomplished this on regular tours of their chosen center, the barn, by finding and carrying off every hen whose instincts have brought her down out of the rafters to set a clutch of eggs in some low nook or corner, except for this last one, who somehow escaped when he destroyed her nest last spring and has not since let instinct betray her again. Though sooner or later I guess it will. Of dogs, we have at present one large, fat, and exceptionally benevolent pup who so far thinks that all creatures, wild and tame, were created as playmates for him. But even when old Blue the varmint-hater was still around, the barn was too far away from the house to be included in his nighttime patrolling orbit. 
So, games are on their own, as they pretty much always have been, but this time the arithmetic is very poor. Before long, I suspect I'll find it needful to set aside my admiration for them as natural creatures and my disinclination to interfere in natural processes, at least as far as chickens are concerned, and will engage in little management with some traps and a shotgun and flashlight. Otherwise, it might turn out to be time to build that neat henhouse with its yard and get those Orpingtons. And, strangely, I don't really seem to want to. This has little to do with the work that would be involved, for construction around here is more or less constant anyhow. What I find with surprise when I dig down to the bottom of my feelings on the subject is a very strong doubt that those fat and motherly creatures would be half as much pleasure to own and to watch as the wild and raunchy birds we've grown used to over the years. Starting right with poultry is undoubtedly a great idea, but starting wrong and keeping on that way may suit some of us better. In the final section of his book, John Graves presents a sort of potpourri of different topics, people, weather, chewing tobacco, and other topics. He calls this section Ponderings, People, and Other Oddments. Chapter 13 is titled Noticing. A good long while back, as time goes for us as individual mortals, I lived for slightly more than a year in a small, dingy apartment on East 15th Street in New York City, poking more or less continually at the keys of a Corona portable and hoping for better days ahead. While Manhattan has never been exactly my idea of a spiritual home, I think I was farther from considering it one that year than during any of several other stays, even if it did give me what I was looking for when I went there. Anonymity, release from the pressures of family and friends, metal scope for some naughty apprentice work. My sixth-floor windows in that habitation gave on to an air shaft whose disused and littered courtyard was patrolled by rats in search of edible rubbish and cats in search of edible rats. Though two or three times during my tenancy, the rats ganged up and managed to eat themselves a cat. Nor was the ingestion of cousins and offspring unknown. The view was not much improved by glimpses of sad clerks in the back ends of offices around the shaft, or by what I could see of the goings-on in one of the ladies' rooms of S. Klein's On the Square, a cut-rate department store. Its big window, open in warm weather, was opposite my work table, and occasionally there were some pretty good free-for-alls over package mix-ups, or who was to get first go at a particular toilet stall, made more complex by the fact that some shoppers used the place for trying on skirts and blouses and things. But on the whole, the ladies came across as just a quarrelsome aggregation of pale, bulging flesh, and I learned to ignore them most of the time, along with the cats and rats and filing clerks. I achieved indifference also to the horrific mood music against which these scenes were enacted, the air shaft being a sounding box for all the racket of Union Square, the square that S. Klein's was on, and a zone of convergence for several bus lines and three subways. Even at three or four in the morning I could listen unheeding and unmoved, drifting toward sleep, to the amplified farting of great diesel engines, the squall of steel wheels on steel tracks, 
and the frail, piercing cries for succor rising up from murderous alleys here and there. To do so was a matter of functioning, of survival, though I remember that obliviousness clearly enough. I can't recapture its feel, and indeed have a hard time these days believing it was really I who experienced it. So different was it from the sort of casual but constant observation of detail, the noticingness of the rural life that I've led for most of the past two decades. It would be simplistic to ascribe this contrast to some supposed superiority of a country existence over the city kind, for I've known some dull and unobservant rustics and have had some urban friends who missed very little of what went on around them, from obscure marital tiffs on subways to the fairyland glitter of mica in certain downtown sidewalks. I've even liked certain cities well enough myself and have lived awarely in them. But the country attitude I mean is in some ways of another sort. It comes from having a personal stake in the landscape that envelops you, in the various beasts and fowls and crops and objects it contains whose ownership you claim, and in the activities of many wild things that own themselves. To take stock of all this daily, to exercise surveillance, is about as much a requisite for survival as was my 15th Street indifference. Survival for your chattels, alive or inert, and therefore for you as a countryman. Because if you grow careless about what's happening on the land, you stand a good chance of ending up broke and back in town. In the country, you need to notice certain things, and even fairly fog-headed fellows like me attain a degree of alertness. Bugs, for instance, are part of the human experience in almost any surrounding, flying up before one's feet in grass, building ingenious nests under eaves or webs behind austere computer panels, fluttering or zooming from tree to tree in search of nectar or prey or love, expending their entrails on windshields, scurrying beneath the water heater when the kitchen light goes on, fiddling long, sleepy heat songs throughout afternoons in August, stinging or biting mammalian surfaces, stinging or biting mammalian surfaces when such is their inclination. Yet in town only a few species of them are ever much thought about, and most of those few by suburbanites jealous of the well-being of the miniature farms they call yards. A countryman who runs his place right, however, while he's unlikely to be an expert entomologist or even an adequate one, often has to be familiar with the look and habits of dozens. At a minimum in my region, he knows green bugs, grubs, aphids, armyworms, ticks, fleas, lice, stink bugs of three or four varieties, flies of six or eight, mosquitoes, various wasps and ants, crickets, grasshoppers, numerous kinds of spiders, and a host of specialized epicures like corn earworms, Colorado potato beetles, spotted and striped cucumber beetles, beeswax moths, peach tree borers, plum curculios, grape leaf rollers, tomato hornworms, and squash bugs. Most matter to him as potential pests and enemies to be dealt with harshly, but others, predatory characters like ladybugs and mantises and spiders and some wasps, pollinators, soil-enriching earthworms, and so on, are friends and allies in his often doomed attempt to thwart rank nature's resolve to go her own sweet way. 
He sees both sorts and their signs as he goes about his daily rounds, fleetingly for the most part, but consciously enough that if they add up to a problem, clouds of hornflies tormenting his cattle, for instance, or a proliferation of cabbage loopers in the garden's lettuce, he can take some needed action. You may on occasion catch him doing queer things, such as crumbling mud dauber nests between his fingers to see what sort of anesthetized spiders have been stored there to feed the growing larva. At least you could have caught me doing that last summer when the black widow spider population burgeoned alarmingly, which pleased the daubers greatly and set them off on a reproductive binge stoked with black widow meat so that by autumn not only could I stick my hand into the dark corners, more or less without qualms, but the armatures of all unprotected electric motors were jammed with mud nests, and among the materials composing my barn, adobe may have outweighed wood and sheet iron. Bees make a botanist of their owner as he watches for blooms and nectar. In fact, the more varied the activities to which someone commits himself on and with the land, the keener his powers of observation are likely to become. Flat, rich, monocultured country with wide expanses of wheat or milo or cotton and very little else requires no whetted perceptions on the part of its proprietor save in terms of soil conditions, weather, and a few sorts of weeds and insects. But an archaic type with a recalcitrant rocky up-and-down domain who indulges his outworn notions of self-sufficiency by gardening tending an orchard, sowing three or four field crops in their seasons, keeping poultry and bees and a milk cow, running goats and beef cattle and sheep, and even worrying over the fish in his stock ponds, needs to utilize such awareness as he can muster just about full time, which I guess ought to add up to tension and neurosis, but doesn't often seem to. More usually, it comes out as the sort of equanimity that fitting in with one's world can give. The Bookshelf. We're in the midst of From a Limestone Ledge by John Graves, a book published by the University of Texas Press. Vern Windham is executive producer of the program. In the next installment, Graves continues his observations of the myriad things a countryman must notice, much like a juggler keeping several balls in the air at once. As he puts it, you notice, and in noticing, you live. We hope you'll join us. 